Welcome to Luke 21 Radio, a broadcast explaining biblical prophecy in the tradition of St. Augustine. And now, from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Luke 21. We kind of have a special episode here for you today. This is episode 284, and my producer, Jessica Granger, suggested that we're about to begin a new mini-series in the next episode, and she said, why don't you share with listeners why you launched Luke 21, and what reasons did you want to start the broadcast, and also, how did you get to where you are today and what you believe? So, Jessica has recorded countless episodes of Luke 21, and why don't you send her a thank you? Just go to askthehost at gmail.com and just say, thanks, Jessica, for producing Luke 21. Okay, here we go. Um, shortly after a young adult conversion, I found my way out to Southern California, uh, attended a very large church, which was one of the strongest rapture-at-any-moment teaching churches in Southern California, in fact, the whole country. Um, And it was my first time encountering the rapture-at-any-time believers. Now, you might think that um, I'm about to uh, criticize them with something, but no, just the opposite. Because when I encountered these folks in Southern California— It was the first time in my life, I was over 21 years old, that I encountered somebody who had a real living belief in the second coming of Christ. It shocked me that they they really believed that Jesus would literally come again to this earth at a certain point in history. Now, I grew up in a church confessing the creed that meant hardly anything when I said it. You know, he ascended into heaven, he seated to right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he will come to judge the living and dead. What does that mean? It meant, it just didn't mean a whole lot to me. And honestly, I just Maybe I missed something, but it just didn't seem to have the, the ring of reality to it. And when I encountered Christians who really believed what the Bible said about Jesus coming again, it started changing my life for the better. And, you know, a worldview, and I don't want to get into a worldview, but just to make it real simple, John 3.3 is about the most condensed verse or statement on how to develop a worldview, Jesus is about to go to the cross. It's John 13, right before he's going to wash the disciples' feet and go to the cross. It says, knowing he came from God and knowing he was going to God, he then began his service. You have to know where you come from, and you have to know where you're going and what's ahead. And in my life, uh, where I came from, the evolutionary slime. And where was I going? Uh, Despite my 
attendance at church and confessing creed, it was some kind of never-never land in the hereafter, very nebulous. But here was people who took this so seriously, and so it really shocked me in a good way. It shocked me into the reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And for this, I thank my rapture friends, okay? Then I uh, go to an Assembly of God college, and I just couldn't get enough of learning about Jesus and the Bible, but especially eschatology, because it seemed to be an ingredient in my life, kind of as a wandering pilgrim and a prodigal son, that shocked me back to reality. So, for instance, there was an 8 o'clock New Testament survey class, and to me, 8 o'clock was late. I had just gotten out of the service, and, you know, an 8 o'clock class wasn't early, but for a lot of my fellow students, it was. And as they kind of like dozed during this early morning class, I probably asked 75% of all the questions asked in that class, and anything touching eschatology or biblical prophecy, I probably asked about 97% of those questions, okay? Then I took a Greek class, classes, and uh, I'm not particularly good at languages, didn't do well in languages, but I knew that First and Second Thessalonians were really, really important for understanding the whole notion of the rapture, which I wanted to be true, but I wanted confirmation to be true. And when people throw Greek words at you and you don't know Greek, um, you know there's something missing from any level of certainty. So I attacked Greek like a madman, studied it day and night so that I could understand First and Second Thessalonians. And it's no accident that 284 episodes ago, I began with First and Second Thessalonians, okay? That's kind of where, my, where I wanted my Greek to take me. And then in theology class, again, a stream of questions. I, I probably was horribly obnoxious, but nonetheless, uh, during and after classes, I would tag my professors, kept asking questions, and surprisingly to me, uh, within 24 months of Christian higher education, and I came knowing really nothing, I ended up teaching a theology class on eschatology in a Christian college. Uh, my theology professor, who has the head of the theology department, would go to Belgium May 1st to teach in a Bible school over there, and he needed somebody back in the U.S. to teach the eschatology, the last part of the systematic theology dealing with Bible prophecy, and he asked me to teach it because he probably didn't know anybody else on campus more interested in the topic. Well, I did learn Greek. I did know enough eschatology to know that the pre-trib rapture, the rapture before the seven-year tribulation, was basically a British and American uh, innovation. It wasn't taught in First and Second Thessalonians, so I simply moved from the rapture or the resurrection of the body uh, before that seven-year tribulation period to after it, from pre-trib the post-trib, but I was captured by the wrong question because the rapture question was always presented to me as, will that seven-year period, uh, the rapture before the seven-year period or after the seven-year period, but the thing that was assumed is that that seven-year period was before the millennium. I didn't have a clue that the millennium 
the kingdom reign of Jesus is staring me in the face. It's here and now. It's been here for 2,000 years. It took a little while to uh, get over that. Went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, again, a great experience, and I began having respect for other millennial positions because I imagined that if I abandoned the pre-mill position, and the pre-mill position is fundamental to the rapture at any moment, that it would end up with that kind of dead type of, or dead faith type of eschatology that I had growing up in church. It just seemed like, yeah, we kind of talked about it, we confess it in a creed, but it's just like, it didn't seem, at least to me, to have any reality behind it. And I began reading and countering other theologians who did seem to have the living faith and did have other millennial positions. And then a classmate, many of you now know, Scott Hahn, one of my friends in seminary, at that time held a post-millennial position. I came to seminary with the pre-millennial position, and he was selling copies of a uh, uh, kind of a rare book by Marcellus Kick, An Eschatology of Victory. I bought it. I don't think I really got into it much until I left seminary. But at that time, there were some very gifted evangelical writers who were trying to reestablish that post-millennial position. And Gary DeMar, David Chilton, uh, Ken Gentry were all advocating a post-millennial position where basically the preaching of the gospel and the salt and light of Christians would bring about a, a kind of a millennial utopia, so to speak. And I just recently did an episode with you and took one of those newer books by one of these men who actually influenced me to the post-mill position, Ken Gentry. I think it was his new little book, Revelation Made Easy. And it was basically a quick survey of the book of Revelation. But when he got to Revelation 20, he did a deep dive. And guess what? Even though he did a deep dive into Revelation 20, he didn't even touch the little season, the season of the great apostasy, and also taught by St. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. And I noticed that the pre-mill position often minimized the reality of the little season. So it was off to the races, <laughs> searching still. I turned to the church fathers, particularly Chrysostom, because he was hardcore and I liked it hardcore, and St. Augustine. But when I read St. Augustine, City of God, Book 20, I knew was, I was home. It was like a puzzle. It's a eschatology puzzle. I had all the pieces of the puzzle before me, okay? But I didn't have the millennial framework to fit the pieces together properly. I got close but it just didn't fit. But St. Augustine made those pieces that I had studied so intensely fit together. And it might sound funny to you, sounds funny to me now, but I was shocked how well an ancient church father could interpret and integrate the scripture. You see, I thought this was the expertise of modern evangelicals. And honestly, modern evangelicals, I'm talking about the top-notch scripture scholars, can do an amazing job of interpreting and integrating the scriptures. But St. Augustine was way ahead of his time. So I came home to the all-mill position after 18 years of struggle, and then God sent in my life a monkey wrench. 
called the Catholic Church. I like, okay, I was led to the Catholic Church, and I thought, oh, no. Oh, no. I'm going to have to go through this again. It was 18 years. I felt settled with St. Augustine's City of God, Book 20, and uh, became a Catholic. I started asking Catholics, well, what do Catholics believe about biblical prophecy? And I'd either get blank stares or rather generalized statements about, well, we're all mill and we follow St. Augustine, but then the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1994, section 667 to 682. This is 15 minutes of reading. My beliefs that I sweated and agonized and puzzled and traveled through all these positions, it's right there in 15 minutes, and it lined up beautifully with St. Augustine, City of God, Book 20, and what I had discovered over 18 years. So was I a happy man? I was a happy man. And basically that brought me to the decision of whether or not to launch Luke 21 Radio. And to me, once we have the catechism, in other words, understanding biblical prophecies with the church, there's no need to take side roads, and yet a lot of biblical teaching by conservative Catholic books and media outlets are not in line to the catechism of the Catholic Church, even to this day. People don't realize it. Particularly, a lot don't think there's a whole lot about the future in the Bible, about biblical prophecy in the future, and the catechism takes a radically different position. So in any case, that's why we launched Luke 21. I hope you stay with us. We got some very exciting episodes just ahead. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 284 of Luke 21 Radio. Luke 21 is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at luke21.com.